American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given to New York City teachers as part of a professional development seminar. said, chair of the American Social History Project, and the uh, five points video that you have in your hand is the first, it uh, was originally a slideshow, those of us who go back that far, it was a slideshow originally, and it was based on my dissertation. So in 1981, this project was begun, and here I am still talking about the five points even to today. It's that fascinating a place. It is, as we put on our title here, the first and most notorious slum in, in America. And it has all these visitors who come to it. You've seen some of the people who've talked about it, and most of them pretty shocked at what they saw. What we're going to do today is look at how this slum was created, what happened when the Irish came here, and of what the meaning of all of this, this immigration to America, what we can get out of it. And keep thinking, of course, of how we could, how this is, these people are stereotyped in a way that might resonate even to today. So the first major wave of immigration, there's been immigration from the colonies, you know, from the beginning of America, people are coming over. But this is the first mass immigration. And it's, it's a way, it's a tsunami. It's not even a wave, it's a tsunami that comes in. From 1825 to 1845, the population of New York City doubled. It doubled again between 1845 and 1855. 630,000 people lived in New York City. I mean, think about the doubling of New York City's population now, and from 10 years, it would go from 8 million to 16 million. That's what had happened. It was this feeling of being overwhelmed by these Irish immigrants. Half of the population was foreign-born in New York in the 1850s much larger than the foreign-born population today. So it's a profound impact. Before, America was a fairly Protestant country. Even the Irish who came, and there were a million Irish who came in the early 19th century before the famine, were coming from, they were Protestants themselves, coming from Northern Ireland, most of them. There were Catholics in America, but it was a small, and oftentimes sort of an elite church in America. The people who are coming in in this new wave obviously are Catholic, and we're going to get to what that means in a minute. The people who came before this major wave in the late 1840s and 1850s were mainly farmers or professionals, ministers, teachers, doctors. They came with a skill. They were artisans. They came with some capital. Many of them went west. West might have been Ohio, but they, they left the, the north, the coast where they landed and moved into what was the western areas and settled, intermarried. So a, a northern Irish Protestant person who immigrated in the early 19th century probably or might have married a native-born American and would have become part of the population. They weren't separate, they weren't other. This new group, this Irish famine immigration, the famine lasts for three years, but we kind of look at this as a 10-year period. 1845 to 1855, this Irish famine immigration is something very new. By the way, it included uh, John F. Kennedy's great-grandfather, Patrick, who came in 1848. He was a famine Irish immigrant to, to America. This new immigration, unlike the older immigration, is very, very poor. Some of them completely destitute. It's Catholic. Now, what did it mean to have these thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Catholics coming into a predominantly Protestant country. It felt to, as we see from some of the quotes that we got from the uh, middle class and upper class observers, it felt like they were being overwhelmed with this foreign, alien outsider. And what was it about Catholics that was so, we don't, it, it's so different today, it's hard to get our mind back to how much they feared Catholics, how much they hated Catholics. Catholics were seen as possibly never being able to assimilate because their first allegiance was to the Pope. The sense was that they might be bringing over the Pope's legions to take over America. I mean, it was an, an enormous fear that, Irish, that the Irish Catholics were secretive, 
that they believed things that Protestants didn't believe, that there was some, some outsiderness to them. So poor Catholic, this alien quality. And for the first time, these immigrants stay mainly in the urban areas. And this is different from all the immigration before. They stay in New York's Five Points, they stay in Boston, they stay in Philly, the cities of the period, and swell those populations in the same kind of way that they swell the population of New York. Because of the timing, this is the first major wave of immigration. There will be lots of waves of immigration after this in the late 19th century when Italians and Jews come in, from the 1960s on when you get Asians coming in. But at this point, this is the first time it's happened and it feels like a, something new and very frightening. Because they're the first major wave, the Irish get kind of a, a leg up, so to speak, in the Democratic Party. The policeman who you saw on the census was somebody who was appointed by a local ward healer to be a policeman. And it was a very good job. A common laborer made maybe a dollar a day. A policeman might make $12 a week. It's a serious amount of money in those days. The Democratic Party is really, it's a small, not very important party uh, up, in, up to about the 1830s when the Irish begin to come uh, in some numbers, but by the 1840s, the Democratic Party begins to take over and by the, certainly by the 1870s, in most major cities, the Democratic Party, the Irish and the Democratic Party go hand in hand, are in control of most urban areas and stay in control of most cities until the 1930s. So they come in early in this major wave and are able to make a real impression, a real profound impact on politics because of the, their relationship to the Democratic Party. Catholic Church, which had been, as I said, sort of a minor player before the Irish come in, becomes a really, uh, again, another kind of uh, uh, extremely important impact, an institution that first of all, of course, welcomes the, uh, the Irish, but because of the Irish, is develops in a certain kind of way, creates parish, parishes, ethnic neighborhoods, parochial schools, something completely new in America, a parochial school. And we looked a little bit at education. There isn't an, an Education Act in 1853 that requires kids to go to school. It's not very well, um, enforced, and the struggle for the Irish is going to be to go to these public schools. They want to get state money to support parochial schools, which of course raises a huge furor among the population um, that somehow they want to be separate, they don't want to, they don't want to assimilate. So all these questions of assimilation are, are there in the very beginning, even though today we sort of see the Irish as you know, totally assimilated in many ways, right? In that, that period, they were the other, as we saw from the images, the images that present them as simian and ape-like. And finally, labor unions, certainly an area where the Irish make a major contribution. The first um, sort of major semi-skilled uh, union, a tailor's association, was formed in New York, mainly by Irish. And continuing throughout the 19th century, they play a major role in, in the creation of labor unions. Now, I came across one of these statistics that I, I sort of love, which is that one in six Americans today can claim Irishness, one in six, because of the, how early the Irish came and their, their children and their children's children. So one in six, and we were looking around, so I'm one of those one in six, Ellen is one of those one in six. How many people here would claim some Irishness in there? Okay, that's probably about one in six in this room, right? Um, so 45 million Americans today can trace their ancestry back, at least on some part, to, to the Irish. So today we're going to look specifically at this famine Irish group because they are the first major wave and make the most difference in the kind of creation of Irishness, Irish identity, uh, the church, the Democratic Party, labor unions in America. So why did they leave Ireland and settle in New York City? We're gonna look at a real short film about the Irish hunger, the Great Famine, but what we're gonna do for a moment is think about how they got here, why they came here, and how do we know that? How do we know about them? What sources can we use? We started with the census. We're gonna look at some other sources that we can use to learn about ordinary people, to learn about how people who, who don't leave memoirs, the Irish, most of the Irish didn't write memoirs. Some of them wrote letters. We have some letters back to home. But most of them were ordinary people who didn't leave memoirs, didn't leave records, weren't presidents, weren't kings. We have to figure out how we can understand their story. The census was one of those 
beginning ways, we'll look at some other ways. To think about Ireland and the great hunger, we first have to think about Ireland as a colony. Ireland was a colony of England for over 500 years. Think South Africa and apartheid before Nelson Mandela. That was what Ireland was for over 500 years. The English had conquered Ireland, subjugated Ireland, pushed the Irish off the land. The Irish now rented land that they used to own. The land was either given to supporters of the English or was given to, there was people brought from Scotland to settle parts of, of, of Ireland. But the most important thing here is to think they were pushed off their land or pushed to the margins on their land. So in addition, their language was suppressed. They were not allowed to speak Gaelic. Their religion was suppressed. They were not allowed to practice Catholicism openly. Their culture was suppressed. They were made to feel, and in fact were, inferior to the landlords who came in, to the Anglo-Irish who kind of sided with the, uh, with the British. So unless you anglicized, as some people did, and became a Protestant, you can't vote, own land, practice religion, speak Gaelic, go to school, or serve in the government. You are completely subjugated within this colony. What conditions led to the famine? So this had been going on for 500 years. There had been a famine along the way now and then. This is something very different. There's an enormous population increase. From about 1790 to about 1840, the population of Ireland doubles. Goes from about four million to about eight million. On this little tiny island, there are only about four million Irish today. But at this point, the population had enormously increased. Why? Early marriage and high fertility. Now, how could that be? These people are oppressed and subjugated, all of that. Well, one of the consequences of not owning your own land was you had these small plots of land. You had to feed your family. What did you do? You grew potatoes. And the potato, the average laborer in Ireland ate 16 pounds of potatoes a day. Now, we like our potatoes, you and I, but I mean 16 pounds a day? Maybe with a little bit of butter if they were lucky, maybe with a little bit of milk. And what is even more amazing is potatoes are completely nutritious. Yes, 16 pounds, I'm, I'm amazed. Maybe the women ate 12, I don't know. Um, but the, it's a nutritious, surprisingly nutritious. You can survive, as they did. Not only survive, but expand. They, the population doubled. But one thing, the potato was so nutritious. The second thing was that without any, when people don't have a lot of hope for the future, one of the things they might do is they have a lot of children. They get married young. They're, there's no reason to save for the future. They're not, there's nothing more than what they've got. So they t their, the plot of land that their parents rented is divided up with the four or five kids that they have. They have an even smaller plot of land. Maybe they get a quarter of an acre. Maybe they have some land that they actually work for a landlord and they get a little place to grow potatoes. Because they have that, they are able, in fact, to marry young, much younger than everybody else in Europe is marrying at the time, and the, the fertility rate is quite high because this potato, surprisingly, is, is as nutritious as it is. So in 1845, the potato crop fails. This is not the first time potato crop has failed before, but it fails in 1845. People begin to, are very, very hungry. It fails in 1846. People begin to starve. It fails in 1847. People die by the tens and hundreds of thousands. In fact, uh, we'll see that the number of Irish who die is somewhere between a million and a million and a half out of a population of eight. Why didn't they go other places? Why did they stay in this miserable you know, con condition? Partly because they weren't educated, right? They didn't have any skills. They were able to survive on these little plots of land. You didn't learn how to do anything else. There were very few cities. Dublin was the only city, and it didn't have much work for a poor Irish renter from the west of Ireland. A million people did emigrate, did leave Ireland, but that was usually the people who had, you know, the people who get up and go. They have some get up and go, right, and they leave. So it's usually younger men and women, but predominantly males, who leave Ireland before the, the Great Famine. There's no local industry in Ireland. The weaving industry and other small industries that used to uh, that Irish used to work in and could, you know, produce a living. The English had closed those down as well because they were competition for their own weavers. So 
There was very little that many of the Irish could do. There were two things they could do. What was their two responses to this terrible situation? Violence, the forming of uh, agrarian secret societies, the Molly Maguires come to America in the, in the uh, mines of Pennsylvania. The Molly Maguires is a secret society Originally, it was a secret society in America. They have some ties back. Because the Irish who come to America maintain their ties pretty closely with Ireland. They don't go back, by the way, but they remain. They do connect, have, have uh, some ties. So they, one response would be violence, and there was a lot of it in the countryside in Ireland. They bring some of those faction fighting, some of those gangs to America. The second response is emigration. What else can you do? As this staple of their diet, collapses, and as they begin to face starvation, older people, the young people, the sick people die first, but it becomes, I mean, it, the, the scenes of, uh, the descriptions of the scenes of, of suffering in Ireland at the time um, are pretty horrendous. We're going to see a 10-minute clip from a film called Out of Ireland, the story of Irish immigration to America, quite a, quite a nice um, CD that you can, you can get. Uh, on Amazon. We're going to watch 10 minutes about the, the, the famine. In the mid-19th century, most of the population of Ireland lived in small settlements, such as the one called Ardnaglass, in the western part of County Sligo. In 1825, the family of Thomas and Bridget Barrett emigrated from Sligo, crossing the Atlantic to an Irish Catholic settlement in the province of Quebec, Canada. But the Barretts left behind their older daughter, Mary, who married a man named Michael Rush and started her own family. Ardnaglass was little more than a crowded cluster of one or two room cottages with roofs made of thatch and walls of mud or mortarless stone surrounded by yards where pigs rooted and stunted cattle grazed among the rocks. Each family had a tiny garden growing potatoes, virtually the only food crop available to Irish peasants. Our image of Ireland today may be of a sparsely populated pastoral country, but the Ireland that Mary Rush knew was densely populated almost double what it is today. Despite intense poverty, potatoes had kept Mary Rush and her family relatively well fed, but their sole dependence on that crop was about to have disastrous consequences. An elderly farmer described the strange events of autumn 1845. A mist rose up out of the sea, and you could hear a voice talking near a mile off across the stillness of the earth. It was the same for three days or more. And then, when the fog lifted, you could begin to see the tops of the potato stalks lying over, as if the life was gone out of them. And that was the beginning of the great trouble and famine that destroyed Ireland. A vicious blight surged through the potato crop, creating a famine of horrific proportions. The British government made some efforts at relief, but the tragic irony was that during the years of the famine, large amounts of food were being shipped out of Ireland to Britain. Between 1846 and 1851, over one million people died of starvation and disease. Yet another tragedy of the famine years was also the direct result of British policy. If a tenant fell behind in his rent, or if a landlord simply wished to clear his land for grazing, 
the landlord could call upon the forces of the British Crown. Local officials would physically remove the Irish family from their home. This policy was enforced throughout the 19th century, but during the years of the famine alone, over 500,000 Irish people were evicted from their homes. The hardships of the famine fell most heavily on the west of Ireland. For many of the Catholic peasants in places like Ardnaglass, the only option was emigration. But Michael and Mary Rush had no money to pay their passage out of Ireland. They felt that there was only one place to turn for help. September the 6th, 1846, County Sligo, Ireland. To Thomas Braddock, Ottawa River, Canada. Dear father and mother, pen cannot dictate the poverty of this country at present. The potato crop is quite done away all over Ireland, and there is nothing expected here, only an immediate famine. If you knew what danger we and our fellow countrymen are suffering, if you were ever so much distressed, you would take us out of this poverty isle. We can only say that the scourge of God fell down on Ireland in taking away the potatoes, they being the only support of the people. So, dear father and mother, if you don't endeavor to take us out of it, it will be the first news you will hear by some friend of me and my little family to be lost by the hunger. And there are thousands dread that they will share the same fate Michael and Mary Rush. For God's sake, take us out of the poverty. And don't let us die with the hunger. In his impoverished Canadian community, Thomas Barrett received his daughter's letter, but had no money to pay for her passage. In desperation, he turned to his parish priest. They petitioned the British government, asking that relief funds be used to bring famine victims to North America. But Sir Charles Trevelyan, the director of relief efforts, felt such expenditures unjustified. The great evil with which we have to contend is not the physical evil of the famine, but the moral evil of the selfish, perverse, and turbulent character of the Irish people. Those English attitudes were a major impediment to the English government uh, giving the Irish people adequate relief during the famine. And they were more concerned that too much charity might destroy Irish character, which English politicians never had a high opinion of anyway, than that famine might kill them. Just as a colonized people have a strong tendency to envy and to emulate those who appear superior because they are stronger and wealthier, so also the colonizers tend to justify their rule by force by arguing that the people over whom they rule are in every way inferior to them and therefore have to be taken care of as if they were disobedient children. It is difficult to know whether Mary Rush and her family were able to escape the famine. They may have died in Ireland, victims of hunger or disease. Over the course of the famine, the population of their parish fell by more than one third. But many of those who died were buried in unmarked graves. Another possibility is that Mary Rush and her family left Ireland, but never arrived in America. Typhus and dysentery killed 50,000 Irish men, women, and children in the quarantine camps of America and aboard the emigrant vessels known as the coffin ships. 
for sure whether they did escape. You know, it's a great unknown. But one thing for certain, they never showed up in Canada. I loved my native land with energy and pride Until a blight came on the crops, the sheep and the cattle died The rent and taxes were to pay, I could not them redeem And that's the cruel reason why I left all skibbereen between 1845 and 1860, a period of only 15 years, the population of Ireland was reduced by one-third. Over one million people died, and over two million people emigrated, swelling the stream of Irish Catholic immigrants to America into a flood. Yes? Anybody have just an information question or... Something they didn't understand. Yeah. The question is whether organized attempts in, uh, by Irish in America to bring people over. Mostly what there was was remittances back to Ireland by the Irish who were living here, and those were n numbers that are uh, hard to believe. An Irish journalist estimated that $120 million was sent from 1845 to 1860 by Irish to Ireland. And if you remember the kind of jobs that these people had, saving that kind of money and sending it back must have been an extraordinary effort. There was a small effort on the part of some landowners in Ireland to send people here. The Lansdowne immigrants, for example. Lord Lansdowne sent immigrants who actually settled in the Five Points. But that was only about 5% of the immigrants who came here. Those who came here either got some money from their relatives or friends here or managed somehow to scrape enough to get over here. And what did they find when they got here is what we're going to look at now. They settled in cities, as we said. Rents were cheap. Maybe they had some friends there. Maybe they had some relatives to, to um, help them out. The Five Points was that place in New York in which the, the Irish came. And compared to just about every place in the world, there probably were a few places in London that were more overcrowded, but it was probably one of the most overcrowded neighborhoods in the world in the 1850s. Yes, it's a very good question because, of course, what most immigrants did when they came, the Germans at this point are coming in in great numbers, and many, many of them became farmers because that's what they had done in the old country. If you think about what their farming consisted of, right, I mean, they were not farmers in a sense. You saw some of those, the images that of, of Ireland. Today is a very different kind of country, green and beautiful and sheep grazing everywhere. Then the kind of farming that they did did not prepare them to do farming in America, right? Planting a patch of potatoes was not going to be the same. And farming took capital. I mean, you had to have money. You had to buy the equipment, you had to buy the seed, you had to buy the animals, you had to buy the land. They didn't have that. They're, the only thing they could do was stay in the cities. They simply did not have the ability to go to the places that other immigrants um, had gone in the, in the past. So they settled in the Five Points, a place that in the 18th century was quite beautiful. It had a big uh, freshwater pond, which by the 19th century had been filled in for a variety of reasons which meant that the land on which they lived, in which these frame buildings that we saw, some brick buildings, was, was swampy. And so it was, you know, it was sort of fetid and, and uh, uh, it tended to, buildings tended to settle. It was an area that probably only, you know, people who couldn't go anyplace else would live. There's incredible overcrowding, and as we said, the Irish really make up the major proportion of the Five Points. About 66% of the adults in the Five Points in the 1850s are Irish. The next largest group is the Germans, and that's about 14%. So they're the major group, but there also are, as we saw in the census, they're African Americans, although they have moved uptown because there were anti-black riots in the 1830s, and they've moved out 
uptown, but there's still a few left. There's some Italians, there are some Jews, Polish Jews and German Jews, and as I said, uh, some Germans. The places where they lived were, you know, sweltering in the summer and frigid in the winter. These uh, tenements, the absentee landlords, they didn't live there. They didn't do much, much to repair them. The privies were out back. They weren't connected to sewers. Think about that for a moment. There was no running water. You had to go down to the taps on the street. There were taps that you filled up the water and brought it, carried it back up a couple of flights of stairs. If you wanted to do any laundry, then you'd have to heat it up. You'd have to, you know, so when they were described as being very dirty, well, I mean, the, street, the streets weren't paved. Pigs ran in the streets. You brought all of that inside with you, with you. So there have been poor people throughout American history. This is the first time that so many settled in one place in the center of a major city. These aren't, this isn't the outskirts anymore. They're right in the heart of the city. And so many that seem so alien. As we said before, Catholic, this idea that they were a threat to the Republic, that they wouldn't assimilate, that they would have their allegiance to the Pope. They're extremely poor, obviously, and they're violent. There are several riots in the 1830s and 1840s in this period, or in this uh, neighborhood. So how did it get its reputation as the most notorious slum in America? Some of the reasons we just said, it's so overcrowded, it's, uh, it's violent. But one big reason was it's very close, and you'll see, we have a map which we're gonna give you later, it's very close to Newspaper Row. The newspapers were all kind of in the same place, and as we know today, sensational stories sell news. So the reporters could walk into the Five Points write about some sensational thing that was happening in the Five Points, either in the groggeries, in the bars, people fighting, whatever, uh, Irishman drunk, which there certainly was a problem of alcoholism. But it was because this was so, so close, it was so easy to get a story there that the stories proliferated and continued up, up through the new social history, I would say. Yeah, it's there. Yeah, you'll see it. We, we have a map which we're going to give you later. The, the whole sixth ward, if you started at Canal Street, the Bowery, and Broadway, that's the sixth ward. Five Points is sort of in the middle of it, near where the... It's, it's in China. It's where Chinatown is now, too. It's fully square, and that park down there is sort of part of that larger area. But it's walking distance. Columbus Park was made, created, in order to do a slum clearance at the turn of the century. So one thing is that it, it's, it's in newspaper, it's near the criminal courts, as we just mentioned, the courts, and the reporters would go look at the police blotter, find out how many drunken Irishmen had been picked up, write stories about how terrible it was in the Five Points. You could create these fantastic characters, right? And if any of you saw the movie, The Five Points, the Scorsese movie, well, those fantastic characters come right out of this period. They're written about by Herbert Asbury in the 1920s, who writes this book called The Gangs of New York. What does he base it on? He bases it on the sensational newspapers from the 1850s. That then becomes the basis for the characters in Scorsese's movie. So you see how this, these images, these stereotypes continue, and why when people like me wanted to look at this, we had to figure out ways to find sources that would not simply incorporate all of that stereotypical images. And some, the census is one, and we have others that we're going to look at later. Probably the third reason why it becomes so notorious is the Protestant missionaries that we see, Reverend Pease, see this as an opportunity to convert these poor, degraded, depraved, morally in inferior characters. First of all, convert them to Protestantism. If we can't convert them, we'll take their kids from them, which they did in great numbers until they got stopped. But the idea was somehow that the problem with the Irish and the Five Points was that their character, as uh, Kevin Kenny is saying in this film, the English saw the Irish as their character was weak and depraved, therefore we can't give them too much charity because we'll just make them more depraved. Same thing, in the middle of the 19th century, the idea that there would be any real understanding of economic reasons for poverty doesn't develop until the late 19th century. We begin to grasp with the notion that people are poor not because they're depraved or sinful or evil, but because of the conditions of the economy in which they live. There are no jobs, for example. And finally, one of the reasons it becomes so known and so notorious is because it's close to nightlife. I mean, think, not Times Square today, think the old Times Square, those of you who went to the old Times Square when it was Times Square, not, not the Disneyfied kind of Times Square today, that's what this place was like. I mean, the Bowery was, you know, theaters, saloons, oyster bars, prostitutes, street vendors, hot corn being sold on the streets. I mean, it was bustling, it was exotic, it was fascinating, but it was very unsettling 
to the people who you know, came to look, and a lot of people from uptown did. A lot of people from other places would come, as we saw from some of the people who uh, we read their quotes. There's a lot of visiting. I mean, the, the idea of slumming, you know, sort of starts in the five points. These folks coming and walking around and being, ooh, look at how awful and how terrible and how evil and how, ooh, interesting this all is. I mean, because it really is that kind of exotic other for them. I mean, all the theaters were on the Bowery. They were on Theater Row. You went to them, there's lots of great theater going on. Theater was something that people went to regularly in a way, they might go a couple times a week. It was very cheap. You could get seats way up. And it was kind of exciting, raucous. You know, they yell back to the actors. There's throw fruit, all that kind of stuff. It was a kind of exciting and fun thing to do. But, it, you know, people from all around, the working class from further north, from further south would come. To the, to the five point. A considerable number of African Americans who moved there because there, there have been some violence in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, they're Irish, they're, you know, whoever is poor and an immigrant is gonna live in those kinds, of, those kinds of areas. And one thing that I found kind of interesting is that tap dancing is invented in the five points. There's a place called Pete Williams, which is a famous dance hall saloon. Hundreds and hundreds of people, enormous place. A guy named Master Juba. If anybody went to the New York Historical Society uh, exhibition on slavery, Master Juba, they had a thing about Master Juba. He was known throughout America, and he traveled in Europe, African-American tap dancer, or dancer, let's start with that. He's a dancer. Dance halls were integrated. Men, women, blacks, whites, different ethnic groups, which is another reason why the upper middle class found them completely appalling. You know, wow, this is terrible. We have all these crossing of sexes and races. This is awful. Master Juba would compete with some of the Irish dancers who had brought the Irish jig with them from their homeland, and they'd compete in big, I mean, for big prizes, like $500. And if you, yeah, I, I can't do this in my head right now, but if you multiply it by, it by 16, you would get today's number for that. Anyway, so Master Juba and another Irish guy would compete, and eventually the kind of dances that they did melded together and became tap dance, what we know as tap dance today, I mean, but it was invented here in the five points. So one response to all these Irish coming, the fear that they create, the alienness of it is reform, is the Protestant missionaries trying to come in and reform, bring the Irish into the Protestant church, into a much more respectable domestic way of living. The other response, of course, is nativism. And nativism in the 1840s and 50s is particularly virulently anti-Catholic and anti-Irish. The idea is that these people are not assimilable. These people are really going to ruin our, that is we Protestant middle class Americans, way of life. For one thing, the Irish are opposed to all of the progressive reforms of the day. They're opposed to abolitionism. They're opposed to temperance reform. They're opposed to public school education. So the Irish play this kind of role in the Democratic Party, with which they are linked, is opposed to all of that as well. The Democratic Party, who's, you know, is also part of the, the South, is the supporter of the Democratic Party, so they're really not supporting any of the progressive reforms of the day, which we can talk about later if, if you want to think about that. You're fresh off the boat, okay? You've been, you've fled Ireland with probably just the rags on your back, with hardly anything to eat. You've been on the boat for four weeks to two months. You've been provided with a t very small amount of food. You probably went to Liverpool first. Maybe you tried to work a while to earn some money. When you get to New York, you are in pretty bad shape. So the first thing you want to do, obviously, is find a relative or a friend, somebody from the old country, who can put you up. Because you probably don't have a lot of money. There may be some help from, an, from the Irish immigrant societies, but relatively very little, especially when tens of thousands are coming in every day. We know that people found friends and relatives because if you look at the census in the five points, you can see that, for example, Carrionians, people from Kerry, County Kerry, settled in certain areas. People from Cork settled in certain buildings. So they obviously were making some kind of connections with each other. They clustered, right? The second thing you're going to have to do is find a job. And as we said, it's not going to be a job in agriculture. Agriculture is the last thing you want to do, and you can't, you can't do it anyway because you don't have the money. What you're going to find, of course, is unskilled laboring work, seasonal work. You might tramp the countryside to look for some work. Upstate New York, earlier years they worked on the canals, later years they would work on the railroad. But it's backbreaking. It's uncertain. It's very poorly paid, maybe a dollar a day. And in the middle of the winter, when there's not much construction or paving streets or digging ditches, which is what they did, maybe you could load some ships, but 
generally there would be a real period when you had hardly any money at all. Seneca Village is the place in uh, Central Park, which was a mix of African Americans and, and Irish, again, the poor, the poorest of the poor. Now uh, there they might have had a little plot of land, they may have had a pig. But even there, they probably, and they were squatting, they weren't owning, they, they would have to find some way to make a little money in order to buy the kinds of things that they, that they needed. The Irish women, you know, they could become, a lot of them became seamstresses. The Five Points was the center of the garment trade at, the, at this time. So they became seamstresses, but this is a, a grueling, terrible job, and very poorly paid, $1.50 to $2 a week. So if you were widowed, it was a, a very difficult and precarious living. About 25% became domestics, and the Irish filled the domestic service much more than other, other women all through the 19th century. For one, many of them could speak English. Some of, the, some of the people who came spoke only Gaelic, but because Gaelic had been forbidden in Ireland, so they came, they could speak English, which meant that they had a leg up on some of the other immigrants in working as a domestic servant in somebody's house. And domestic service turns out to be a be somewhat of a better job than working as a seamstress. Any thoughts about why it would be a better job to be a domestic? Yeah. There's safety, although there could be, you know, the master who, who, but there is some safety. You're not living outside on the streets, yeah? You would be fed. There is some sense that, yeah, that the Irish learned how to become middle class by seeing the way people laid the table, seeing the kind of food they ate. Yeah, in the back. Hand-me-downs come your way, and maybe if you could lift him. And Bridget, who was, that was the name that all Irish women were given, Bridget, was assumed to be, you know, uppity. And, the, and Irish women are known for um, having a certain sense of gender role difference. And, the, and Irish women are not part of women's suffrage, which was, of course, a big reform movement at the time. They didn't support it, even though Irish women were very active in labor unions even though they earned their own money in a lot of places, they didn't believe in the idea that men and women were equal. Men did their thing, that was fine. Women did their thing, they didn't want to have, never the twain should meet. They didn't want to have equality with men. They see, saw themselves as separate, separate but equal probably. But there was a, there's a way in which the Irish women do have, uh, they're different from a lot of other immigrant groups. They come over after the famine in much larger proportion than men in America, which means they have less opportunity to marry, which means many of them work in certain kinds of occupations like teachers or nurses where they could earn their own living and many did not marry or as domestics. Uh, separate from your, your community, you have room and board, you have enough money that you can save to send back to Ireland, which is what you're doing with the money that you've got. But you're, you've got a kind of separate world that was different, I think, from, let's say, the Italian women who came predominantly as wives or daughters and were married. There were many more Italian men, so there were many Italian women who married. Irish women were more likely not to marry, and some of the reasons might have been because they wanted to earn their own money, which they could send home to their families. So how they survive in this, since they're not making very much money, everybody in the family works, right? Wives often took in borders or laundry. The kids worked, the teenagers turned over their money. We saw that in the census here, some of the uh, young people still living in the home. Of course, they don't have any place else to go. Little kids, young kids would go out and either they could black boots, they could collect coal, they could sell newspapers. So everybody in the family works. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, an Irish journalist who came to America said that between 1845 and 1860, $120 million was sent back to Ireland. And we're gonna look at some records from the Emigrant Savings Bank, which we now have. Emigrant Savings Bank was located near City Hall, so it's also within walking distance of this neighborhood. And the number of Irish men and Irish women and the amount of money that they were able to save out of these small salaries is uh, is really quite extraordinary. The Irish Catholic Church is a certain, it, it follows a certain brand of Catholicism, different from lots of the Catholicism in other parts of Europe, which is a more ascetic, more authoritarian, more hierarchical form of Catholicism than even some of the other Catholic groups. And because of that, there, and, and also I think, you know, because when you got to America, having left what you had in, in Ireland, which was so terrible, you really were trying to establish yourself in a way that, while some of them, of course, worked for wages, others of them, one of the things they could do, and the Catholic Church did provide this, could go into the priesthood, could go into the convent, and 
Sisters of Charity and Sisters of Mercy worked in these poor communities essentially to kind of counter what the Reverend Pease and people like that did. So they, what they came to, well, what they had survived, what they arrived, what they found when they got here, in addition to the work that they had to do, they found a vibrant, or created really, a vibrant working class community which the Reverend Pease and outside middle class and upper class observers really didn't, couldn't see. What they saw was the poverty, the dirt, the drunkenness, etc. What, what they couldn't see was that the Irish and other immigrant groups there had really created, the, so the, the, the way they came together at, at Pete Williams Dance Hall, for example, was something that would appall the reformers, but for them this was a, a way of life, a way that had been, had given them something particularly wonderful and exciting. So we've read some of the descriptions of the five points that you saw, and we've looked at the census, so we're gonna later in the morning after break, we're gonna look at some of these other materials that we can try to figure out how we can know this community a little bit better. Before we do that, let's, let's see whether we can look at the cartoons on the, what this is gonna be is the way they were viewed in newspapers, this is 1871, so it's a little bit after the major influx, but this is what middle class newspapers and readers were seeing. The American River Ganges by Thomas Nast. The crocodiles looked like cardinals, right? Okay, so this is what? The Catholic Church, the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, yeah. Political Roman Catholic, and it's got, it looks like the papal uh, up there. I can't really make out the other one. And what's the issue with public schools? Flags upside down, and what about that? What does that say? Disaster, right? Or Here's the Protestants, right, protecting the school children from the Catholic onslaught, the alligators coming out, crocodiles coming out to get them. This public school up here where the, where the flag is upside down is an indication that the Catholics are trying, they believe, to take over the school system. The Catholics want to have, because in the public schools, the King James Bible was used. This is anathema to the to the Catholics, right? So the Catholics want to create their own parochial school system, and in order to do so, they want some state money. The danger of these Catholics coming out and eating, right, the Protestant middle class. The state legislature in the late 50s, in looking at this, set up a public school system that was supposedly not going to use the King James Bible, and therefore argued that this was going to be a, you know, a nonpartisan kind of school system. Well, that made everybody mad, right? Neither the Catholics nor the Protestants liked that idea. So essentially, many of the public schools just continued to be, to continue the way they were, but what happened was that they now had local school boards and those local school boards could be elected. And if you were you know, in the Democratic Party and you were part of uh, a local system, you could get your own people elected and then perhaps make some changes in the public schools. But that, even that was scary to Protestants. We know that there were schools in the Five Points where kids, both Catholic and, and Protestant schools, the Church of the Transfiguration, which is a church in 1853, the church is still there. If you, go to the, if you go to Chinatown today, that church is still there. It was originally an Episcopalian church. The Catholic church takes it over because the Protestants were sort of moving out. They create a church there and a school. So there are kids beginning, even in the early 1850s, to start to school. But you know, many of them didn't last. People didn't go to high school. I mean, high school was not something that the average person went to. Uh, so these folks would probably be going to maybe for a couple of years to learn how to read and write, maybe. It begins sort of in the late 19th century when this group's children start to get a foothold and get an education, and a lot of those jobs, of course, have political connections, and so the Irish are set in a, in a very good position to take a, not only the public school system, but the police department. The, you know, there have been a lot of Irish were, as I said, they were here first. They were the biggest group. And they took, they were very influential in the Democratic Party, so they really managed to, and so it's in the late 19, 1870s, 1880s, up through the 1930s and 40s. Why did he use the, why did Thomas Nast use the River Ganges here? The British Raj, okay, has something to do with the British. I don't know about that. Any other thoughts? Okay, alien and foreign. I mean, the Ganges is a place where, it, you know, a Hindu would go and submerge themselves, so these people are coming, the Catholics are coming out, both foreign folks, right? A holy river, the Ganges is a holy river for Hindus. So see, he's pulling up these kids, the Irish up here, pulling up these kids, 
who they're trying to protect. Now these, these kids look sort of mongrelized, actually, if you look closely at them. They're kind of dark. What do you see here? Rum, brutal attack of the police the day we celebrate Irish riot. Animals. Look at these animal simian faces. Top hat, animal, look. They're subhuman. They're closer to animals. They're not like us. They're savage. They're uncivilized. They can't be assimilated. They're violent. Alcohol, rum, and rum, right, uh-huh. One of the things that the middle class reformers want is a temperance, there's a big temperance movement. But to them, temperance oftentimes means abstinence. Temperance to us would mean moderation. To them, it meant abstinence. And for the Irish and the German in particular, the beer halls, the saloons, that was their, that was their social life. I mean, if you lived in those ter terrible tenements, one of the things you might do is go out to the saloon where you'd have a heating unit, it would be warm, you'd have friends. It was also a political gathering, that's where people got together to do politics. But for the middle and upper class, this was why they were brutish and savage, is because they drank too much. Those of you who remember 1960 and the John F. Kennedy race, even then there were all of these kind of anti-Catholic innuendos that were brought up and stories that were told, brought up from the 19th century and told again. Okay, look on this picture and then on that. Okay, so this is Florence Nightingale, heroine to the British, contrasted faces. And what do we see on Bridget? Well, that same kind of animal, simian kind of face, not very civilized, looking pretty scary. Every Irish man was called Patty, and every Irish woman was called Bridget. And when there were jokes in the papers, all you'd have to say was Bridget, and everybody knew you were talking about an Irish woman. Questions, uh, one of which, why the potato famine was so devastating? Why was that all they ate? The potato famine does spread to other countries. There is a potato famine in Germany and Poland and other places. In no other country did the individual depend on the potato in the way they did in Ireland. Why was that? Because since they had been forced off their land, the, and the only way they could pay rent, because they now had to rent their land, the only way they could pay rent was if, if they had a pig, for example. They didn't eat that pig, they sold it and paid the rent. If they raised chickens, they didn't eat those chickens or those eggs, they sold them to pay the rent. The only way they survived was on these potatoes. And Probably maybe up to two-thirds of all Irish depended solely on eating potatoes or eating potatoes with a little bit of milk or a little bit of butter. I mean, there, were, there was probably 40% of the Irish, that's all they ate was potatoes. And the amazing thing is how nutritious it is. I mean, that's what's so surprising. I mean, it probably would have stopped earlier if it hadn't been that nutritious. They would have died, you know, they wouldn't have doubled the population, they wouldn't have come up to that famine. But it, it's unique in that Ireland is the only place where this kind of Eating the potato is the only thing that you get. The ward systems, you know, changed because there was a big reform. One of the things that you used to be able to do is that within the ward you could appoint, you know, all the people. The street sweeper, the policeman, the, the people who checked the shops. That was in the hands of the, the politician, who was also the saloon keeper. That changed in the late 19th century when they passed better government laws where you took all of that patronage out of the hands of the individual ward boss. Thank you. Holy River.